You can't impeach somebody for doing the best job of any president in the history of our country for the first two years. And people have seen and people have watched what we've done. It's whether a political it's tax call, cuts. No, it's, You're prepared yeah, it's for political, it? but, you know, it's supposed to be high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, there was no high crime. There was no misdemeanor. There was no problem whatsoever. The only thing I've done is created maybe the best economy we've had in the history of our country. Analysts say the slow economic erosion of the shutdown could collapse into a fast-moving landslide of problems. Those tax cuts? Sure. They helped out big corporations by fueling higher deficits, and they basically haven't done anything to increase wages. Trump has spent roughly 60% of his working hours in unstructured executive time. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Well, today the nation has come together at last for a tender moment of shared emotion. Across the board, Starbucks CEO and 2020 presidential candidate Howard Schultz has a 4% approval rating among Democrats, Republicans, and his very own independence. It's moving that we can all finally agree on 4%, namely that we now know the definition of unlikable. And his name is Howard Schultz. Schultz's billionaire proposals for less taxes for him and less health care for us was briefly charming. But ultimately, Schultz getting richer while we get sicker didn't seem like quite the deal it initially did. I mean, I hate making the baristas do this, and I promise after this, no try-hard Starbucks jokes again, but we're going to have to have them pour out that Frappuccino. It was all foam, vanity, and hazelnut-flavored Splenda. We're not talking 2020 much today because the question is still open. Who's going to be president in 2019? We still have a venti, I mean, Bolshoi collaborator in the White House, and indictments and arrests being made on the reg of all his butlers and valets and courtiers. Two of his jesters, Roger Stone and Jerome Corsi, are staging a funny, clowny fight about who's more in the soup. My guest today says that at least one of his fellows in Congress, a Republican, would vote to impeach the president, and I'd say 56 or 92 or let's call it an even 101 percent of Democrats would. Okay, so that leaves us with Pence, but he's tired and possibly sold out, too. So it's President Pelosi and thus endeth our story. So I mentioned that my guest is a congressman today, and he's a Trump cast favorite, Ted Lieu, Democrat of the great sovereign biosphere that is Los Angeles County. Trumpcast is heading out to Los Angeles this week and on Thursday night, seven o'clock at the Ace Hotel Theater, we will be doing Trumpcast live. Please join us if you're out in Los Angeles. For tickets, go to slate.com slash live. Congressman Liu is going to talk about the House Judiciary Committee, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Jared Kushner's security clearance, and holding Trump world's feet to the fire. I'll be back with Congressman Liu in just a minute, but first Trump and aesthetics. That's right, Trump as an artist, a deal artist. And friends of the podcast visited the museum to see a moving retrospective of the art of the deal. Okay, and if you will move into this next room, this is one of the rooms I'm most excited about here in the Deal Museum. We're coming up to some really almost current times. This is the 2019 government shutdown by President Donald Trump. A very exciting deal. Wow. Take a look at some of the details there. Honestly, it's a lot bigger than I expected it to be. 35 days. Wow. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a naysayer, but I just don't really see how this is a deal. I'm sorry? 
I'm looking at it and I'm just like, I don't understand. How is this a deal? Are you someone who appreciates modern deals? Because we are in the modern wing now. So maybe you're somebody who's used to seeing more of a classical renaissance deal. I'm just looking at this and I'm like, my three-year-old could have done this deal. Like literally, my three-year-old could have done it. It's very broad. There's not much nuance. I probably have one of these on my counter at home that my three-year-old actually did. And I just don't understand if you're like, you put it on the wall and call it a deal. Is it really a deal? Well, the dealist in this case chose to do it in this way. And that's, I think, what's special about it. I don't know. I mean... It's really starting to feel pretty juvenile here. I mean, there's details about throwing tantrums and banging tables, throwing candies, saying goodbye-bye. I mean, it just, it doesn't really feel like an accomplishment in the way that a lot of the other deals felt like. What are some deals that you guys appreciate? Camp David Accords. I really enjoyed the Louisiana Purchase a couple rooms ago. Okay, now that's from the 18th century. That's when deals were much more literal. Well, I'm fine with that. You know, there was a clear trade of agreement and goods. There was something that happened in that deal, literally the purchase of land. This one, I see it. I'm looking at it. I don't feel great about it. And then what happened? Why? I guess why? Well, part of the whole thing with modern deals, and especially a dealist like Trump, is you have to ask yourself, is this even a deal? What is a deal? What's the deal? Well, what is the deal with this deal? It just doesn't seem like a deal. I guess I don't want to get too philosophical here, but for a deal to be a deal, doesn't there have to be some sort of resolution between the parties? I just feel like this looks like we we started with one thing and then we ended with the same thing. You don't get to just call a deal. I'm going to call it a deal. Like time went on, but that's the only thing that progressed. Have you studied deal history extensively? Because I majored in deal history. I don't really I feel like I should guys. have to study deal history. I'm here. I'm witnessing the deal on the wall. I'm just saying I don't like it. I don't think it's a deal. And I just don't think I need a degree in something in order to have a strong opinion about it. Yeah, it just feels like you're being a little dealitist here to say that just because you've studied deals that you can tell us whether or not this I think is the, a good one. I don't think you appreciate my Is the deals. next room the gift shop? Because I'm done. Joining me on the line is Representative Ted Liu. He's a congressman from the great state of California. Congressman Liu, it's great to have you back. How are you? I'm well. There's nothing more energizing than seeing you on Twitter. Oh, you're very nice. Thank you. One of the small upsides of the desolation of this president is that so many people have found a really interesting voice on Twitter and elsewhere. The administration provides a lot of material to work with. (laughs) Exactly. You don't have to do much except regularly repeat Why does Jared Kushner have a security clearance? Right. Exactly. (laughs) Let's start by talking about Kushner's security clearance. I know this is the subject that concerns you and concerns a lot of American citizens. You and Donald Beyer of Virginia have sent this letter to Mick Mulvaney asking him to immediately strip Jared Kushner of his security clearance. What are your reasons? So we've been working on this issue for over uh, a year when we first realized that Jared Kushner had to submit not one, not two, but actually three security clearance forms, at Mm -hmm. least, because in the first two, he omitted his foreign contacts. And I've had to submit these forms myself in the past. Uh, I have had a security clearance before Congress. And these forms ask very detailed questions. About a third of the questions relate to foreign contacts. There's Mm -hmm. no way you can go through that form and not understand that the U.S. government really cares about your foreign contacts. And for Jerry Kirshner to admit all his Russian contacts, uh, to me, was just a stunning intentional omission. Mm -hmm. He didn't fix it, though he was caught. Mm -hmm. 
and we wanted to revoke back then. But now we realize that career folks who look at security clearances also said he shouldn't have a top-secret one. They were overridden by the White House, and that is not right, and we think it should be revoked immediately. So I want to back up to the SF-86, which you mentioned, the notorious form to get security clearance. And I've never done it myself. I did go through the 127 pages, which can be found for anyone online of this this form that's just a bear. It seems like it's a harrowing experience to go through for anyone, even if you're a Clark Kent. Even Robert Mueller would find it annoying to do. One of the questions stands out as one that Jared Kushner cannot have gotten right. I think he reportedly made 100 plus, quote, mistakes on the form. No one's ever seen someone make that many mistakes. Question 19 must have bewildered him. Do you have or have you had close and or continuing contact with a foreign national within the last seven years with whom you or your spouse or cohabitant are bound by affection, influence, common interest and or obligation, include associates as well as relatives? I mean, this is the kind of thing an immigration officer in Florida who lied about being bound by affection, as they say, I think he slept with a foreign national. He lied about it on the form and lied about it again to investigators and went to jail for it. This is not something that you mess around on. That's correct. And you actually have to personally certify the form. And on the certification page, it reminds you that not only if you lie, but if you omit Mm -hmm. material information, uh, that is also a felony. So it's pretty clear to us that Jared Kushner violated the law when he submitted two security clearance forms that omitted material facts. But this is just one part of the security clearance Mm. process. Mm -hmm. The experts then take this information and they look into it. And when they looked at all his ties to various foreign nationals, as well as his financial entanglements, Mm -hmm. they recommended that he not get a top-secret security clearance. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact that he has one right now really shows that you have a White House that doesn't seem to care very much about security clearances. So let's talk about what you mentioned, that since you've been asking for this clearance to be revoked, even back when it was a temporary clearance, it became a top-secret clearance, I think, in May of last year, a year almost to the day after Trump appointed as director of personnel security someone called Carl Klein. Very hard to find anything about him. He's a former Pentagon employee. But he not only waved through and rubber-stamped applications that had been declined by, as you say, career security professionals, security experts, not only waved through Jared Kushner, but 30 others. I mean, who is this guy? So Congress is now in the control of Democrats. We're going to find out this year and really let the American public know what happened, because the public reporting is very alarming. It appears that uh, this individual overrode the judgments of career security specialists, and not just Jared Kushner, but another 30-some folks also have security clearances that they uh, probably should not have. Mm -hmm. Jared Kushner also does not actually have the highest levels of security clearance Mm -hmm. because he was denied for that, and thank goodness the White House is not the agency uh, for those clearances, so they couldn't override it. But he does have a top-secret security clearance, which is pretty, pretty high, but at least we have other parts of federal government who do not trust them to have security clearance at the higher levels. 
lest anyone think that the, quote, mistakes and the rejection of Kushner's security form are simply kind of clerical errors that could be a felony, but just in themselves, there has already been manifest danger to Kushner getting this kind of high-level clearance. He's been freestyling on foreign policy. We could talk about Qatar. We could talk about Israel. I think we might stick to Saudi Arabia because I know this is a subject that has concerned you for a long time, going back to Obama, that America's alignment with Saudi Arabia has always raised questions for people like you. And now we have Jared Kushner showing up in a, it's always called a bromance. I think there must be a name in Arabic for a bromance now because they use it so much in both media between Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. And then this thing that seemed, I don't even have a word for it. I mean, it seems like he was complicit in a human rights abuse by attempting to help Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, quote, weather the storm of Khashoggi's murder. So MBS connected directly. Our intelligence services say that he ordered the torture by Bonesaw and everything else of Jamal Khashoggi, an American resident journalist in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul. And then Kushner gets on the phone with him to weather the storm. I mean, you know, there's a lot of emotional disturbance that comes after you've just ordered the torture and murder of someone. I mean, I don't even know what to make of that. Well, my first thought when the public reporting broke on that issue is that Jerry Kirchner's loyalty should be to the United States, not to Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Jerry Kirchner's job as a senior White House advisor is to advise the United States president not to help other countries' leaders. Mm-hmm. The second point is, if again, if you look at the public reporting, he was having trouble with 666 Fifth Avenue, a property that did not go well for him. He mm-hmm. bought it at way too high a price. It had significant amounts of money that were going to be due relatively soon, and he was trying to secure funding mm-hmm. for that. The reporting is a cutter turned him down, mm-hmm. so he went to other places. And then, you know, lo and behold, he supports the Saudi Arabia blockade on Qatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the timing of that is certainly definitely coincidental, uh, if not nefarious. Mm-hmm. And we also see that, again, based on public reporting, the Crown Prince has stated that he has Jared Kushner in his hip pocket. Mm-hmm. That is very disturbing, uh, if true. So, again, these financial entanglements and possible foreign influence uh, all play a role into security clearances. And the security professionals basically said Jared Kushner should not have a top-secret security clearance. Sometimes we talk on Trumpcast about how things like emoluments or the Russia contacts might be damaging to the world order. Where do you see that this administration has already damaged the world order, either in its relationship with Russia or Qatar or Saudi Arabia or China or Israel? If you look at Donald Trump's own statements, it's pretty clear there's a big for sale sign uh, in the White House mm-hmm. where basically he's saying he's not going to take much of any action against Saudi Arabia because they buy a whole bunch of weapons from us. Uh, that is unconscionable position to take, mm-hmm. uh, especially when uh, Saudi Arabia is engaging this civil war in Yemen where there are multiple airstrikes on civilians nowhere near military targets. Uh, those look like war crimes. I've asked the Department of Defense Inspector General to investigate to see if any of our personnel are complicit in war crimes. And it simply appears that because Saudi Arabia has a bunch of money and oil, that Donald Trump is not going to do anything about their abuses. I've asked your colleague, Congressman Adam Schiff, about this. Talk about how it was before the midterms and then what changed with the midterms. 
so one thing that changed during the midterms, obviously, is that uh, Democrats uh, took over the House. But I think the way we did it is significant. Uh, we ran on uh, issues of reducing health care costs, mm-hmm. creating good jobs with infrastructure, and rooting out corruption. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, the Republicans, ran on big, scary caravans that were going to invade America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they got crushed because American people are not stupid. They realize these slow caravans show up at our legal points of entry. There is no invasion of America. And by the way, based on Donald Trump's own words, last year we had a 45-year low in border crossings. Mm-hmm. So we're now going to hear a State of the Union tomorrow, where it appears he's going to double down on the exact same argument that he lost uh, this past November. Yep. So we'll see what he says in the State of the Union. But it's pretty clear to me that Democrats want to work on issues that actually take America forward and help the American people. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the Trump administration trying to double down on arguments that are factually not true and just are not resonating with the overwhelming majority of Americans. Do you all walk around the legislature like noticeably brighter after the midterms? It seems, at least from your Twitter feed, that you all are really energized. You know, it's all based on anger, <laughs> but then I count to 20 before I tweet anything out. I I wish the president would do that as well. Uh, But uh, there is a lot of energy in the Democratic caucus, partly because uh, we know that the last two years, the Republicans in the House simply fell down on their constitutional duties of oversight. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're going to start doing that. Uh, It took us a little bit of time to constitute our committees. That's what happened in January. And now they are all up and running. I'm on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the House Judiciary Committee. Our first hearing uh, in House Foreign Affairs will, in fact, be on the Arabian Peninsula and what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen, as well as other parts of the world. And then in House Judiciary, uh, this uh, coming Friday, we're going to have Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker come in, and we're going to ask him a lot of very important questions I think the American public should know the answer to. And that will be televised? I believe it will be. All right, let's talk about the Arabian Peninsula, because this has been of great concern to you going back, as I said, to the Obama administration. What's first concern on the list? Well, so let me first make the point that I don't have any philosophical objection to supporting U.S. allies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a U.S. ally, Mm -hmm. but I do object when they're engaging in conduct that looks like war crimes. And I also do object uh, if they brazenly go ahead and, and murder a U.S. resident and when their embassies torture him, cut him up into little pieces, and then lie about it to the American people mm-hmm. for 17 straight days. Mm-hmm. Uh, there should be consequences to actions, and if Saudi Arabia sees no consequences from America, it's going to just embolden their behavior uh, that violates international law. Yeah, the point about having Jared Kushner in there in MBS's hip pocket, I hadn't heard that expression before. I know there have been reports of the leadership of many countries laughing about how vulnerable Jared Kushner is to influence because he has these financial problems with 666 Fifth Avenue, extremely naive about foreign policy, China's leadership, Israel, Mexico. Trump used to worry that we were the laughingstock of the world under Obama. We really are increasingly the laughingstock of the world. So I'm less worried that some countries uh, may be laughing at us Hmm. than the fact that Jared Kushner is compromised uh, because of his financial entanglements, Hmm. uh, because of all the reporting that has come out about uh, different problems and issues he has had. 
now we know that foreign intelligence agencies also know this because they read the same articles we all read, mm-hmm. and then uh, they can leverage that against him, mm-hmm. right? They can do certain things to try to blackmail him or to make him even weaker if he doesn't take certain actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it is, I think, a serious problem to have a senior White House advisor who has been denied for a top-secret security clearance from security professionals to still have one. And it's my hope that the Department of Defense and our intelligence agencies are not feeding him top-secret information because he should not be looking at it. Do you think there's any, and I don't know what's become of the internal coup that declared itself in the New York Times some time ago, the top anonymous administration officials all working together to protect the country, but do you think it's possible, you know, we know that Trump gets limited security briefings. Um, you've offered him a, a briefing on how to how to tell a good news source from a bad one, and, you know, you had pictures of the the FBI's logo, the CIA, NSA's logo compared to the face of Tucker Carlson um, or Vladimir Putin to make it clear which is which. But anyway, I'm I'm not sure that his advisors um, do such a good job spelling out national security issues to him. You know, we do hear that he doesn't get briefings. Is it possible that there's a kind of detente among our national security professionals and that Jared and Trump don't get full intelligence or at least even what they're cleared for? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I do know that what the reporting says is intelligence professionals are learning to mention Donald Trump's name in their briefings to keep his attention, Hmm. that they try to use visuals, uh, Mm -hmm. that if they make the briefing too complicated, he loses interest, Mm -hmm. and that they present facts that he doesn't like, he gets angry at them. That last point is highly disturbing because Mm -hmm. the purpose of intelligence briefings is to give the decision-maker facts. Yeah. And then Donald Trump can decide what he wants to do with it, but there's no reason for him to get angry at what are simply facts. Mm-hmm. And for him to do so uh, is just highly disturbing because the intelligence agencies are not his enemy. Uh, they are a tool for him to use to improve American national security. And the fact that he is getting angry at them and rejecting facts is harming our national security. It's my hope that we do have our federal employees who understand that they took an oath. The oath was not to the president. It was not to any political party. It was to the Constitution of the United States. Mm-hmm. I expect them to honor that oath. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of different things come out from the federal government, such as their disclosure of his schedule that mm-hmm. shows Trump was spending 60% of his time in what's called executive time, which basically means doing nothing or watching TV or sleeping. But why do we know that now? I think it's because you have all these federal employees who have seen the president close up and they're somewhat horrified at what they're seeing and they want the American people to know what is actually happening. Every time another memoir comes around, everybody's all too eager to talk about for all their complicity what must be extraordinarily distressing and stressful. For everyone who works there, I mean, this is just such an enormous moral responsibility working for someone who seems to me to qualify for the 25th Amendment. So there's a famous saying that says, you know, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. Mm-hmm. I think it's fine for Donald Trump to have his opinion on various issues, yeah. uh, but he has shown a very tenuous relationship to the facts. He says a lot of things are simply not true. And uh, that is highly disturbing. It makes it very difficult 
for Congress to deal with him, for the American people to deal with their president. Because if we're not on the same page on basic facts and what is actually true and what is actually false, then it makes it very difficult to move America forward. One of the things you may be alluding to is Trump's swipe at Dan Coats, the head of the director of national intelligence, and Gina Haspel, the head of the CIA, for telling him something he didn't want to hear, which is that Iran doesn't represent a great threat at the moment, and North Korea does represent a great threat. Why do you think, as someone who gets foreign affairs, a veteran, that this is so important that he reconfigure the facts around these two national security issues? So first of all, both Iran and North Korea are threats to the United States. But what I understood the intelligence chiefs to be saying is they don't assess Iran to be going ahead and making nuclear weapons right now. But they do assess that North Korea is very unlikely to give up their nuclear weapons. And that seemed to have set Donald Trump off, which is just frankly quite bizarre, because where does Donald Trump actually get his information from if it's not from intelligence sources? I mean, is it from movies or TV? Or mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of strange why Donald Trump would have any better information than our intelligence sources. Mm-hmm. And it's just simply facts that they're giving to the president. And what a normal president would do is say, okay, given those facts, let me look at how I can you know, better change my negotiations or strategy towards North Korea to uh, either contain them or to try again to get rid of the nuclear weapons. Because if you look at where we are today, North Korea still has not gotten rid of a single nuclear weapon. They have not gotten rid of a single missile. They have not gotten rid of any of their chemical weapons. And the public reporting is they're actually increasing their production of nuclear fuel and hiding their missile bases from the United States. So that's what the reporting says. Yeah. And it does contradict Donald Trump's rosy view of North Korea. And I think that's what got him mad, that he was shown essentially to be a liar again. I mean, this is like when he, you know, declares that there's a national security emergency at the southern border while ignoring what looks like a national security emergency in the White House and with, as you say, a potentially sold out administration. The same with switching the emphasis on what are the growing nuclear threats in the world. In my experience and from what I've observed, whenever Trump seems to care a lot about some foreign policy issue, He's taking talking points from one of his overlords, and in particular from the Kremlin. The demonization of Iran, we had Adam Entis on the show, has been really crucial to Netanyahu. It's been crucial to other foreign powers that we have uneasy and sometimes hostile relations with. And this very strange effort to establish the appearance of friendship with Kim Jong-un is mysterious. I mean, he's certainly not taking orders from American interests, but he's not even seemingly, with that stuff, trying to get elected or please his base. He's pleasing someone else. The actions of Donald Trump are strange, and many of them I can't explain, but there is a thread that runs through some of them, which is he does seem scared of Vladimir Putin. He did kowtow to Putin in Helsinki. He has taken a number of actions that benefit exactly no one, not the U.S., yeah. not any of our allies, 
other than Russia by saying things such as we need to get out of NATO. Donald Trump also refused to impose sanctions on Russia for their election interference and only did so because Congress, with large bipartisan majorities in the House and Senate, forced them to through a veto-proof law. And we see Trump continue to take actions that benefit Putin, most recently by lifting sanctions on Putin's oligarch friend, uh, Mr. Deripaska. There was no reason to do that. Mm -hmm. And he even had large majorities of Republicans oppose that move. We almost were able to stop it in the Senate, but fell two votes short there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there were a number of Republican defections in the U.S. Senate as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is this very odd and hard to explain thread of the president seemingly wanting to please Putin and bending to as well. And it's really hard to explain in an innocent way. It, mm-hmm. it really seems that there's something nefarious going on. One of your most, well, it's hard to choose, but one of your pithiest tweets showed you at a vending machine with a yellow pad. I don't know if you noticed, but the yellow pad revealed something what looked to me like a state secret. So I'm going to tell people what it said in a Sharpie on your yellow pad. You really have to be more careful with those pictures, Congressman. I think it said 5,000 documents subpoenaed by House Judiciary. You know, obviously you were making it quite clear what was on that yellow pad. So tell us about the House Judiciary and what these documents uh, might contain. Right. So the day before, John Bolton was at a press briefing with a yellow pad and on it, it said 5,000 troops to Colombia. Mm. Uh, it looked like he did that inadvertently in showing that yellow pad, yeah. uh, the way he was holding it. He didn't want that fact to get out. Mm-hmm. But when you zoomed in on the picture, you could clearly see that's what it said. And so if that's actually what happened, uh, that he didn't intend for that to come out, that's a really huge OPSEC violation. You yeah. don't just sort of disclose troop movements that way to the public. Uh, so... I have always thought that uh, satire is uh, one of the ways uh, to reveal truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are forms of communication that are better than others. And one of my favorite literary works, actually, is Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal. I thought that was quite effective. So I decided to uh, have Yellow Pad, where I talked about 5,000 documents subpoenaed by House Judiciary. (laughs) Uh, Of course, uh, that was a riff on what Bolton's note was, and I was simply getting a candy at a snack machine and had this yellow pad in full view so that if people just saw the picture, they, they could see that note. Um, <laughs> now, it. there is a grain of truth to that in the sense that the House Judiciary Committee does have subpoena power, and if we believe we need documents that the administration or others are not going to provide to us, yeah. uh, we will not hesitate to use subpoena power to get those documents. Are you enjoying Twitter? I like Twitter. Uh, I like other forms of social media as well, because Mm -hmm. it does allow you to communicate uh, Mm -hmm. with American people and to have communications come back to you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I learn uh, from uh, reading what people write in response to what I post. Sometimes I'll engage in uh, conversations with them on social media. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important to be able to not only communicate, but also to learn uh, from other people uh, what they may be thinking. Speaking of that, we have some questions that rolled in on Twitter. I figured, you know, since you have a lot of fans there, that we'd ask them what they think. And they're not pulling any punches. Here's one from Louis S. Herrero. He asks, do your Republican colleagues really believe Trump is innocent from any crimes regarding Russia? Or are they simply terrified of him and don't care about possible collusion? 
That's a good question. That is a good question. So I get to chat with my Republican colleagues on the House floor and at committees and so on. And I think there are two groups of people. Okay. Uh, there are true believers. I actually respect them more. People like uh, Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows. They're true believers in the cause. They vote on generally on principle. Mm-hmm. And they simply uh, say what, what they believe and think. Then there are members of Congress who are Republicans who are not true believers, who know that uh, it is a disaster what they're seeing in the White House, mm-hmm. that Trump lies all the time, uh, that uh, these uh, Russian links are really quite disturbing, mm-hmm. uh, but they're too scared to say anything. Mm-hmm. And so there was uh, this very interesting article written by Eric Erickson. He's mm-hmm. a conservative writer who I don't agree with very much, but this is a fascinating article he wrote mm-hmm. about his encounter uh, with a Republican member of Congress at a local Safeway grocery store. Mm-hmm. And in that encounter, he talks about how this Republican member of Congress would go on Fox News and defend the president all the time, no matter what stupid thing it was that Trump was doing. And then at this conversation at the grocery store, this Republican member of Congress just lit into the president, Hmm. called him names I wouldn't use, and basically said that he would impeach the president. But of course, he never says that publicly because he's too scared. And I remember reading the article and I came away with two very conflicted thoughts. One was despair, the other was hope. Hmm. So to me, I was, you know, feeling a despondent reading because I thought, wow, what a hypocrite this person was. And then I felt hope because I then realized that, well, you know, for most of us, we're all seeing the same thing. It's not like there are two realities going on. There's just one reality. But a lot of my Republican members of Congress are choosing to lie about it. I still can't figure out how they sleep at night, honestly. Well, many of them got taken out in the last November's yes, election. So, exactly. Uh, they're no longer sleeping and I, as members of Congress. Yeah. Uh, and so I think more will be taken out in two years if they continue to double down on the same arguments that the American people have rejected. I don't know if you saw this, but just a joke by someone on Twitter about how possibly, you know, in 10 years or, or even fewer, we'll see a time when if your yearbook showed a picture of you in a red hat, you would be asked to resign the same way Ralph Northam has been asked to resign for his blackface clan picture in his med school yearbook. Do you think that regrets are setting in or fears are setting in, even among people like Paul Ryan, who are out now and probably have some chance to breathe and reflect on what they were part of? Uh, so one fact that kept coming out uh, I couldn't understand for a while, mm-hmm. which is that uh, Donald Trump has these very high approval levels among Republicans. Mm-hmm. And then last year, uh, Brookings published a very interesting study during the summer that basically said, yes, he has very high approval among uh, uh, Republicans. And one reason is because Republicans that don't support him have also, many of them, decided to just leave the Republican Party. Hmm. They're not identifying as Republicans anymore. Uh, As a result, what you have is a shrinking base, a shrinking Republican Party. Um, And uh, that is what accounts for some of the high approvals that Trump has among Republicans, because it's a much smaller party that's basically going to be all of his MAGA folks, because 
the rational ones uh, have decided to leave. Yeah. And it is my belief that the Republican Party is going to lose an entire generation uh, of minorities and young people, uh, as well as folks in the suburbs. If you, again, look at last November, the Republican Party lost the midterms by the highest popular vote margin in U.S. history. Mm. And if you look at voting among minorities, very high levels for Democrats, Asian Americans are actually the fastest rising ethnic mm-hmm. group mm-hmm. last decade, according to U.S. Census. And based on exit polls, about 77% voted for Democrats. Wow. And that is not normally a group that a few decades ago you would have said would be overwhelmingly Democratic, because mm-hmm. Asian Americans have generally been split, you know, third Democratic, third Republican, third Independent. Mm. But many Asian Americans are horrified at the xenophobic rants of the president and yeah. their anti-immigrant hysteria that he's trying to whip up. Mm-hmm. And I think the Republican Party is going to continue shrinking uh, in years to come, uh, unless they change. All right. Since we're talking about electoral politics, I noticed that you have endorsed Kamala Harris for 2020. Tell me about that decision. Uh, I've known Kamala for many years. Uh, we worked together on a variety of different issues, including bail reform, which is a crucial element of any criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is brilliant, she is tough, and mm-hmm. she is progressive. Kamala Harris is exactly the person we need to lead us in 2020, and I'm just thrilled to be able to be part of her team. Thank you so much for being here, Congressman. A real pleasure, and keep up the good fight. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Tell us what you think. We can't do this without you. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And just a quick reminder that if you enjoy what we do, we got a lot more greatness in store for you when you sign up for Slate Plus. Slot Plus, as they call it on some of our podcasts. You get all of our podcasts on Slot Plus with no ads, discounts to our live shows. And best of all, you're supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. And I have to wedge in one more promotion for our live show Thursday night in Los Angeles at the Ace Hotel Theater, 7 o'clock. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. Kate James, Steve Waltine, and Asher Perlman performed today's sketch. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.